0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Ephesians chapter 2. I think we're going to wrap up verse 10 tonight, and we'll move on to look at verses 11 through 22. I'm chomping at the bit to get to that section. As uh, the more and more I study it, the more and more I get it ready, uh, I'm starting to think that it's, uh, it's more exciting than anything we've covered so far. And that's a lot, because, man, we had the paterological benediction of verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1, and we had the, the thankful wish prayer that followed that in, uh, in chapter 1. We have this powerful salvation passage here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It's a great text, and I'll keep on using it in my evangelism. But uh, you'll see what I'm talking about when we get into verses 11 through 22. And it's going to be very edifying. It's going to be very uh, worthwhile. And it solves a lot of the problems people have when they get to chapter 3, which I'm starting to suspect that people uh, get into chapter 3 and start forming their opinions there uh, and, and they fail to process chapter 2 before they get to chapter 3. So anyway, that's my theory at this point, And we'll see if, uh, if that plays out uh, through the course of our development. Before we do any of that, though, this is uh, important that we start with the word of silent prayer. God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment to quiet our hearts, confess any sin, and uh, be prepared for the study of the word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that you are placing before us here tonight. I thank you, Father, that you designed tonight from the foundation of the world. And here we are now at this moment, at this place, reaping the blessings that you have prepared beforehand. And we just thank you and praise you for your grace and your glory. Open our eyes tonight. Let us see what you have for us. Let us feast upon your truth. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to take a few minutes for Q&A. There is a microphone runner ready to go, so we appreciate that. And do we have a lead-off question? Right back row there and then over to the desk. How about that? Our first two are already lined up. I also have one that came in by email earlier. We can get to that as well. Yes, sir. I was reading a book um, from Art, Arnold Prutenbaum and he was saying that the angels that fell with Satan, that they fell after Adam and Eve were in the garden I always thought that was before humans were so is he I guess he's just wrong on that yeah I would disagree with Arnold on that and uh, but I've encountered that a couple times in the last month or so uh, that uh, it's it's becoming more popular I think it's becoming more popular among some young earth people for example uh, that don't want to accept ruin reconstruction they don't want to accept gap theory they don't want to accept (coughs) different things Um, And I think they read too much into uh, Romans 5, about through one man, uh, death entered into the world, or sin entered into the world, and death through sin, uh, because they pack too much death into that word death. Um, I think they also misread Genesis 1.30, where he looked upon all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And based upon that, they can't envision a, uh, a fall of Satan prior to Genesis 1.30. And that, too, I think, is a misreading of Genesis 1.30. God looked at all that he had made. He looked at the totality of day one to day six and said this was very good. And anything beyond the scope of day one to day six is not relevant to his very good statement at the end of Genesis chapter one. So, um, yeah, I would just disagree with that. I believe that the angels already existed to observe the creation of the earth. Job 38. I don't know how you get around that. Job 38, when he made the earth, the angels and the morning stars were, were singing. They were they were joyous at the creation of the earth. So you've got to deal with the angels being present in Genesis 1-1 long before you get to the formless and void and the uh, let there be light statement of Genesis 1-3. Okay. Thank you. Uh huh. All right. And then we have a question at the recording desk. Is this a, a YouTube question or is this one of yours? Jeremiah. Okay. (laughs) So, Jeremiah asked... Oh, Jeremiah on YouTube. Hey. (laughs) Okay. I have a question for tonight. What did Jesus accomplish when he died on the cross, besides salvation? Oh, my goodness. I don't have enough time. Let me just say it's more than you think it is, all right? Uh, There was a lot that he did, and the blood of Jesus Christ accomplished a lot. Obviously atoning for our iniquity. We get that. And, and But it's more than that. And once we start realizing that it's more than that, we realize that the blood of Christ, for example, cleansed the heavenly temple. Okay, that's a second thing then, right? And then we start to see maybe a third thing. We start to see maybe a fourth thing. And then before we know it, we've got five or six different things that, uh, that he was accomplishing there on the cross. And so uh, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Uh, there's a whole uh, selection of things. So, it's a useful study, and uh, I guess that's as far as I'm going to answer tonight. But we will do further studies on that and just kind of be aware of it. But this is, too, I think, vital, because Jesus said this is the, uh, when he was giving the bread and the wine in the upper room at uh, communion, he said, well, the cup, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. So then you ask yourself, is that the same thing or is that different? Is the blood of the covenant the same work of Christ on the cross as the uh, forgiveness of my sins and my salvation, for example. Um, or is it a different application of blood? Okay. It's the same work on the cross, but he was doing so many things simultaneously in that process, and I think you have to rightly divide that. And if you just say, oh, it's all the same thing, then I think you have more problems uh, in, in that case. That's not, you're not helping yourself in that regard. Anyway, so thank you for that. Jeremiah, I appreciate it. All right, Tams. Uh, in regard to angels, <laughs> uh, what do you think the main purpose lesson is about Jacob's ladder? Jacob's and The angels ascending and descending. Yeah, you know, makes um, you think, doesn't it? So uh, angels of God ascending and descending, is that the, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I ponder a lot of things, right? So clearly, uh, it, it acts as a dimensional portal for, for angelic beings to to cross from from glory into into mortal dimension, right? So angels can can walk this earth. Does every angel need that? Can are there other ways that other angels can get from heaven to earth? You know, when Gabriel was flying from heaven to earth, you know. The angels don't have wings. Can they fly, or do they have to take the ladder? You know, I, I've got a lot of questions about uh, about that. And is that the only place? Is Bethel the only place on planet Earth that has that ladder? And it was just coincidence that Jacob put his head down on a stone there and he saw it when he dreamed about it. Um, or are there ladders all over the planet? You know, are there ladders in every country on every continent? So I got tons of questions. And and the, the thing is, we're dealing with very limited biblical data. And so since we we see it in in that one chapter of Genesis, we kind of observe it for what it is. And then we're left wondering after that. Okay, long answer to a short question. Let's come over here. We got another one. And then I do have one by email if we get to it. Or I can save it for next week. So going back to Ephesians um, 2, 8 through Uh 10, the... I'm seeing. And I'm not sure if if I'm just seeing it, like because I'm looking for it. But I don't know. I'm seeing a four and a not and a not and a four. To me, that looks like a chiasm. Is that something that? Um. Is that not? No, I wouldn't take it that way. Okay. Uh, but you are correct that you do want to observe the four and the four in parallel, and you do want to observe the not and the not in parallel. It's not of yourselves. And it's not of works, right? Which is basically saying the same thing twice. It's not of yourselves because it's not of your works. And uh, you're not the source of it. You're not the cause of it. You're not the means of it. Uh, so, yes, the, the not and the not are, are definitely in parable in, uh, in parallel. And the four and the four are definitely in parallel. I wouldn't take it chiastically, yeah. I'm not a fan of chiasms. I mean, they, you can find them in the Bible. But I've also found that um, it's become very popular and trendy for um, scholars to find them everywhere. And they're just not as many places as they're trying to convince me they are. So I'm a chiastic um, agnostic in in many cases. But good question. I appreciate that. Another question is might be controversial um, related to Jewish people. According to Genesis 12, 3, and we know this because we were just in Genesis 12. Um, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So are we commanded to bless every genetic Jew because they are descended from Jacob? Is that then a mandate? Is that an obligation? Uh, no matter how atheistic, racist, Christian persecuting, mass genocidal, child abusing, uh, the future chums with Antichrist. Okay. And that paints a pretty Grim picture, okay? Yeah, there's a lot of jerks, right? Jews and Gentiles alike. And are we obligated to, to bless every last one of them? Or is the Israel God talking about the believing nation of Israel, which doesn't exist today? Obviously, uh, they're in the land today, but they're in the land in unbelief, okay? And also, what do we mean by bless? Uh, In my mind, the best blessing we can provide is the gospel to every unbelieving Jew we meet and every unbelieving Gentile we meet. That's how we bless them in in that respect. We obviously don't want to curse them. But I would also point out Genesis 12.3 is not a command. It doesn't tell us to bless every Jew we meet. It does say, though, that as we bless them, we will be blessed. So the one who blesses you, I will bless. The one who curses you, I will curse. We don't want to curse the Jewish people. We do want to be a blessing. And like I say, the best blessing we can be is to uh, not side with their enemies that are trying to destroy them, and to uh, and to present Christ to the to this lost and dying world. Um, I would highlight there are some things to consider. For example, unbelieving Jews are clearly Satan's agents. That's why they're called a synagogue of Satan. That is an expression from the scriptures in Revelation two nine and Revelation three nine. Not only that. I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. That gets my attention. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And so there's, I think that's a verse that needs development. I think we need to understand what that's about. Obviously, uh, there's also warnings. Beware the dogs. I like to quote this a lot. It's not biological dogs, right? We're not talking about canines as much as it's fun to tease dog lovers. Uh, when it says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. We have three words there. In fact, they all start with kappa in the Greek. Kappa, kappa, kappa. And uh, so uh, even when we taught Philippians, I said, beware of the KKK. Yeah. Right. It's highly amusing to me that the KKK in this passage. What is it? Kune for dogs and kakos, ergos for evil workers and the. Uh, the mutilation or the false circumcision there, the katatame. Anyway, they're all kappa words, so beware of the KKK. And they are all Jewish. The dogs are Jewish. The evil workers are Jewish. The false circumcision, these are the Jewish Judaizers, the legalists, those that are sneaking in to spy out liberty and and, uh, and all the rest. So there are warnings that we are given as church-age believer priests that the Jews that have rejected Jesus as their Messiah... They are not on our side. They are anti-Christ literally. Okay, and we've got to be aware of that. And when, when the Bible says beware, we should beware. When the Bible says beware three different times, that gets my attention. Obviously, not all Israel is Israel, Romans 9.6. Just because they're genetically Jewish and they descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember that if they are unbelievers and if they are hostile to the, to the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ... Then we've got to we got to be um, shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Okay, we, that doesn't give us license to curse them, but we do have to be cautious in our blessing to them uh, because uh, there is violence involved. The uh, if you cast your pearls before a swine, what does the swine do? They turn and they rend you to pieces. So that's why there's these uh, notes of caution. Likewise, Romans two twenty eight and twenty nine. He is not a Jew who has won outwardly, nor a circumcision which uh, is outward is in the flesh. Uh, so there, there's a lot of things there, and, and it's just a difficult thing to answer because uh, very frequently, if you answer, and it doesn't matter how you answer, um, a lot of times you'll be called anti-Semitic. Oh, well, you just hate Jews. Where in the last two minutes did you hear me say anything about hating Jews? Okay, I'm answering with Scripture, and I'm showing what the Scripture says. I didn't invent the term synagogue of Satan, and I'm not the one calling them dogs. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit in the Scripture that's addressing these things. And so I just want to have the right perspective to how is Genesis 12:3 applied during the time that Israel is set aside. In other words, during the church age, until such time as he resumes his plan and program for Israel, Um, what is our application with respect to that? So, anyway, uh, it's not a command, and I think uh, there's more study than is uh, needed for that. So I will mark that as concluded. All right, last call. Anything else before we we proceed? We're giving the microphone runner a pretty easy night tonight. That's okay. All right, well, let's get to uh, Ephesians 2.10 then. Thank you for that. And uh, see if we can wrap this up and then get a sneak peek to verses 11 through 22. This really is the capstone to chapter to verses one through ten. Right. Verses one through ten. You were dead. But God, that's what I called this, uh, this whole section. You were dead, but God. Okay, that's verses one through ten. What you used to be as an unbeliever in verses one through three. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace we have been saved. And so we have ten beautiful verses here of what we used to be and what we are now, thanks to the grace of God, thanks to his saving work and everything that he did for us in uh, the uh, triple soon divine compound action of making us alive together with Christ, raising us up together with Christ, seating us together with Christ, all of these glorious things, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. The final, the closing statement of this, uh, this ten-verse uh, sentence, the closing statement here is, um, is so beautiful because it's application all the way. We are his workmanship. Not what we used to be, but what we are now. We are His workmanship, created. Being saved in the church age, by the way, is a creative act of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in now. Alright, so man, we've done a lot in, this, in these verses, as I skim through these notes. We have two summary Gar statements, the four in verse 8 and the four in verse 10. And tonight we're wrapping up the second of these. The uh, critical for application, we are his workmanship. We are his poiema. God's the one that did the poie'o. God's the one that did it. The verb that means to do or to make. God poie'oed and God katibzod. He created as only God can do. And we are his work, the work of his hands, the workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Expressing the aim, the purpose, why it is he created us, what it is he expects us to do. All right. And um, again, critical to note, good works are the purpose of saving us, not the basis for doing so. He saved us for the good works that he prepared beforehand, not because of the good works that we managed to do to impress him. Okay, Just it's the polar opposite related to uh, related to that. All right. So his workmanship And uh, based on what he designed us for, based upon his plan, based upon his intentions. And, uh, you know, don't think for a minute that as we are tools in his hand, remember the tool can't boast, the axe can't boast over the hand that chops with it, that uh, since we are tools in his hand and he has made us to be his tools, let's, uh, let's realize that he knows what he's doing and he's perfect in all that he does. That he suited us perfectly for every work that he designed for us to do. And so every weasel excuse we come up with where we say, oh, I don't think I can do this. What we're really saying is, oh, God's a moron. And he he invented a tool that is not equipped to do what he wanted it to do. That's just stupid, right? God, why would God do such a thing? Since he created us for every task he designed us for, we are uniquely suited to accomplish those tasks, so much so that nobody else in this world can do what we were designed to do. Right, we are custom tools in His hand, custom creation, and we can appreciate that as well. God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And this is the last uh, item we want to deal with: the doctrine of the Christian walk. We've talked about these things before. So, in the subpoints here, we're down to the last two subpoints under point main point nine. Uh, point C: Every good work we are saved for and expected to do in Christ was prepared beforehand by God the Father okay so it 's not an afterthought it 's a forethought it 's not uh, it 's not uh, plan B or any other thing it 's plan a it 's what God has always intended from forever from eternity past from the foundation of the world. The good works are prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them this is I find this to be glorious I find this to be comforting i find this this to be um, such a, a great answer to any of the, the flawed thinking that's out there for folks that are, well, obviously for the Armenians that think they can lose their salvation, just point them to a passage like this and say, how can you possibly lose your salvation when this is what he, he saved you for? This is what he created you for. These are the works he's intended for you to do. And uh, he prepared them beforehand, knowing, of course, your failures and your weaknesses and the, the different uh, problems you're going to have along the way. It didn't stop him from creating you and saving you and doing all these things. So stop making excuses and, and get to the work. We did spend a couple of classes on the Hetue Mas route, uh, talking about all things connected to uh, Hetway Mazo, to Hetue Mas, to Pro Hetue Manzo, to all these expressions that speak to planning and intention and design and preparation and purpose and everything that goes into um, the, the fact that none of this is by accident. And none of this is coincidence. And God's not winging it in the, uh, in the unfolding plan. He knows what he's doing, and step by step, he's carrying it out. And, uh, and that should be a huge, um, that be a huge uh, encouragement for us, but it should also be a huge goad that we absolutely should be convicted that, man, here we are, God's fellow workers, look how prepared he is, and then ask yourself, how prepared should I be, right?, uh, does, if he's as if he's as prepared as as the scripture describes him, why am I not better prepared? I, I really should get fo- more focused on my own uh, spiritual growth and gifted development and, and preparations and everything, so that I can be um, the best coworker that I can be to accomplish these things that he has uh, prepared. So a lot that goes into that. And then finally, these good works are not just expected to be done. They're expected to be walked in. And that, I think, is, is also um, fundamental. I think that's also uh, worthy of our consideration. So it doesn't say here the good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should do them is that we would walk in them. All right? that these are um, works. These are effects. okay, These are things. But we do these things we actually walk in these things. It's, a, it's the shape of our Christian walk. It's the shape of our, the course of our Christian walk, our journey from salvation to glory. Okay? It's not just a, a checklist of things to be done. And it's not, um, depending on human personalities, it's not where you say, okay, I've got these five things to do. How fast can I knock those out? It's not about how fast you knock them out. It's about achieving everything he's designed for you in the course of that walk. Which means, as we run with endurance, the race that's set before us, okay? I'm using walk and race kind of interchangeably here. But this walk is, is a journey from salvation to glory, and it's got to be on his timetable. We've got to be on his route. Okay? We can't be taking shortcuts. And we can't try to, you know, kill two birds with one stone and knock these things out early and check them off. And then uh, and, and why are we trying to do that anyway? Do we we feel better if we can get them done sooner rather than later? What do we do if we get them all done? Okay. Well, truth is we can't. Because the very final assignment is, well, the very final assignment in this life is, is our own physical death, right? But then keep in mind, too, when you read this verse, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you see anything in this verse that limits those good works to this life? Or do we also have prepared works in the next, in resurrection, in the millennial kingdom, in the fullness of time? Are there things we're expected to be doing after the resurrection, after we return with Christ in glory? Are those also prepared beforehand that we should walk in those as well? I submit to you, the answer is yes. That uh, the Father has planned every good work, not just the ones uh, from between Pentecost and rapture. But he's included every good work right up until the, out, the Omega moment of, uh, of Jesus delivering to the kingdom, to the Father, that God may be all in all. Because we will continue to be working in Christ and with Christ throughout those thousand generations of the fullness of times. You think the new heavens and new earth is, is just retirement? We're kicked back on clouds and playing our harps and just, you know, drinking wine and doing nothing. Okay, that's a pretty pathetic view. That's almost a Muslim view of of heaven. What what are we thinking about? OK, no, there's work to be done. And Jesus Christ will be working through the thousand generations as he reigns and as he glorifies his father and the different things that he'll be doing. We're his helpmate. We're his helpmate. And, and, you know, I can't imagine, uh, you know, Jesus doing all these things and us not not being there as, as his helpmate, not being the fellow workers, not. Working as we're designed to do. So I would submit that when we look at these good works, we're not limiting it to this physical life. Okay? In other words, this verse doesn't expire at the rapture or physical death. This verse continues in the resurrection and glory for the, uh, the millennium and the fullness of times as we return with our Savior. So, let's talk about some of these other things about as far as the walk is concerned. They are expected to be walked in, not just done, but walked in. Okay? So the achievement is a thing, don't get me wrong, the, the, the doing of what needs to be done will get done, but it's the doing of what needs to be done in the process of walking with our Lord. And I hope that makes sense. It is a peripateo walking application. And we have done walking studies before, in fact, in basics, uh, it's, it's a whole division of basic doctrinal studies called parapetology, the doctrine of the Christian walk. And I love teaching it to brand new believers. I love teaching it to believers to, to help them to realize that now that they're saved, there's work to be done. There's a walk. There's, there's expectations of our, of our growth. All of that's included in, in our walk. So the verb is peripateo. And you can spot it here as I open up the Greek text side by side. So, we are his poema, created in Christ Jesus for the good works, your ergois agathois. And then it says, the ones which, there's your pro God prepared beforehand. And then here's the purpose, the hina. In them we might walk. Para, pato, uh, para I'm going to mispronounce this, peripatesomen, there you go. Lengthen out that omen to show the, the subjunctive mood. Okay, subjunctive mood is the mood of potential. It's the mood of of, uh, purpose. It's the mood. It's not an indicative mood. It's a potential mood. The works were prepared so that we could, would, should, ought to walk in them. It's the purpose for why he prepared them. Now, is it automatic that we do? Frankly, no. Honestly, how many Christians do become disciples? How many Christians do? walk the walk that they're called to walk, okay? When you study the, the parables and you study the different messages Jesus gives, when you see the, 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 the narrow gate and the broad gate and you start to notice the ratio of the majority versus the remnant, okay? It's a remnant that's saved in the first place compared to the majority that's lost in this lost and dying world. And then even among believers, how many are fruit-bearing believers? When you have the parable of the sower and you've got thorny ground and stony ground Christians, and, and it's only the good soil Christians that are, that are bearing the fruit. All right? So again, we've got a ratio that's being presented there, and I would put forth, based upon thorny ground, stony ground, good soil, that again, it's a minority. It's a smaller ratio of those that are bearing fruit compared to the non-bearing fruit. Okay, Not saying that it has to be a two-to-one ratio, but that is the ratio that the parable of the sower presents. Thorny ground, stony ground, outnumbering the good soil Christians two to one. But then even within the good soil, is there not a degree of, of difference in production? Some will bear fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. So again, even within the good soil, there is still the, the remnant of a remnant of a remnant of a remnant. How many are 100-fold productive Christians compared to the 60-fold productive Christians, compared to the 30-fold productive Christians, okay? I'm not trying to knock the 60-fold or the 30-fold. Thank God they're producing something. Because they're not thorny ground, stony ground. At least they're bearing fruit. But they're not bearing as much fruit as has been prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. Okay? Do you believe that God the Father prepared 100-fold fruit for every single one of His children that is designed to give the maximum glory for Jesus Christ? Or do you believe the Father looked at that person and said, eh, that's a, that's a 30-fold producer? Okay? I don't see that. Okay? I see the Father producing these things for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And when uh, you have to put the blame on... You don't put the blame on God. You don't put the blame on the Word of God. The blame is squarely... Every single time, the blame is on the believer who fails to apply faith to that which is, he has been entrusted with. Okay? That's why uh, they didn't enter into the promised land. That's why the Exodus generation died in the wilderness. Don't blame God. Don't blame the word of God. Don't blame the promises. The book of Hebrews says they did not apply faith. And that's where the breakdown occurs. So, uh, yes, the works are prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, should walk in them, could walk in them, ought to walk in them. Whether we do or not this then it behooves us to be mindful of these things and, uh, and to, to stay in his will, to stay walking in the light and to uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us. All right, so here is our uh, peripateo, and it is a subjunctive mood peripateo. It's the first of all the uh, peripateos that you're going to find in the book of Ephesians. Actually, no, it's not. Uh, the, the one before this was in verse 2. Because we're already walkers. We were walkers before we got saved. When we were dead, we were walkers. Remember, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So, fallen humanity in our lost estate in Adam, before we get saved, we're already walkers. We're already people that, that engage in the peripateo expectations or the peripateo activity uh, that we're designed for. There's a conduct of our lives as unbelievers, but now there's a new conduct of our lives as believers. And the best part is, this not according to Satan's design, it's according to God the Father's design, because he's the one that charted this out. He's the one that planned all this, right? And, uh, and I find this to be wonderful. I find this to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that... Uh, I'm no longer a slave to this old walk, this walk that Satan set up, this walk that my sin nature thrives in, this walk that, that is so conformed to the fallen cosmos, it's, it's not even funny. I'm glad that walk's gone, okay? Or it should be gone. But in the new walk that the Father has put before me, that's what I want to engage in. So the use in verse 2, the use in verse 10, those are the first two of, uh, of the uses that we have here in Ephesians. And we're not done. There are more to come. Okay, and uh, once we get into the, uh, as I've said before, a lot of times people don't like the first three chapters of Ephesians. They say, oh, it's too theological. They just want to jump into chapters 4, 5, and 6 and pretend that the book of Ephesians is only chapters 4, 5, and 6. No, okay. Yes, it's practical. Yes, there's good application there, but you cannot separate it from the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Nevertheless, when we get to chapter 4, again, the very first verse starts with a walking expectation. Ephesians four one, And, and this this is a therefore, I think, that encompasses all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Okay? I think uh, uh, some people would limit it to uh, uh, a smaller section of chapter 3. But I, to me, it's the hinge of the book. It's the halfway point of the book. And the therefore here in chapter 4 is kind of taking everything that we learn in 1, 2, and 3 and then just now... Getting launching us into the application of 4, 5, and 6. So therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to parapateo, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You want to separate out uh, this chapter from the theology? Good luck. Why don't you start by uh, discussing this calling with which you've been called and, and pretend that you haven't covered the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3. All right, you're not going to do it, okay? You cannot live this practical uh, part of Ephesians without the theological theological part of Ephesians. So walk in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner oxios, okay? So um, here's your peripateo, here's your oxios, there's your worthy manner, okay? So we'll be applying that. And so to understand the worthiness of our calling, um, to me means we've got to do the homework and, and process the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because that's where we find our heavenly calling. So we have it right off the bat there in verse 1. Later on in chapter 4, we, uh, we look at some more walking applications in verse 17. Oh, there's some good stuff in this chapter. All right. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord... What's that expression about? That you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. You understand what that just said? You no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. This is a marvelous imperative. You know what this is saying? This is admitting that both of those walks in chapter 2, the walk of the unbeliever and the walk of that, of that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, both of those are still available for believers today. You can, in carnality, go back to walking like you used to walk as an unbeliever. You can, in carnality, do that, but Paul is saying don't, and Jesus is saying don't. So this I affirm together with the Lord. Quit doing that, <laughs> all right? Quit doing that. Like the dog that returns to its vomit to the sow to the mire. And come on, you're saved. He saved you for these good works. He saved you for this new walk. Why are you going back to that old walk? It's hopeless. It's useless. It's futile. It's vanity of vanities. It's Ecclesiastes all over again. Okay, and all of the description there. Okay. And it's not that you lose your salvation, but what it is, you're walking like an unbeliever. Quit doing that. See, we didn't have that option of, carn- of spirituality versus carnality. And we should be choosing spirituality every time, all day, every day. Sadly, though, many Christians don't. And so they choose the carnality path, and, it, and they just functionally, practically, uh, thir- you know, impartial observers looking can't tell the difference between a carnal believer and, a, and, a, and an unbeliever. Just by the externals, how do you tell the difference? They, they say the same things, they do the same things, they act the same way. Anyway, you have the option of walking either walk. That's why we're commanded to not do that one and do this one instead. It, uh, it wouldn't be a command if it was an automatic. okay? And it wouldn't be a warning if it wasn't possible. It's very possible. So the warning is there. It crosses into, uh, so yeah, you lay aside the old life, the former manner of life, just lay it aside. Quit putting it on. Put on the new self. Keep on putting on the new self. Repeatedly put on the new self. Fifty times a day if you have to. Just confess and confess and confess and get back in fellowship every chance. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. It's a much better likeness. Don't you want to bear the image of Christ? Aren't you tired of bearing the image of Adam? Adam? That first Adam, goodness. Okay, the time passed is sufficient. However long that was, um, some of us got saved earlier, and some of us got saved later, and some of us have logged more carnality hours in after salvation than others. But whatever is behind us is sufficient. No more. Okay, stop it. Let's uh, let's keep the short accounts and maximize our time putting on that new self. I love the clothing an- uh, analogies. Put on the new self. Then we get down to chapter 5. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Here's another parapetal application. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is the true definition of love. This is what the Bible's talking about when it says love. It's not your neighbor's yard sign that says love is love, and, and trying to promote all kinds of perversions as if that could be considered agape love. No, love is lost. I mean, love is how God defines it, not not how the world defines it. All right, walk in love and be sacrificial in your service for this lost and dying world. Christ loved you and gave Himself up. We got to we got to recognize that that's the nature of agape love. It's sacrificial. It's not uh, um, supporting sin. It's not validating divine rebellion. Okay, that's not love. Ask yourself, did Christ validate sin or did he die to pay its price? Did he accept the penalty of that sin in his own spiritual death? That's what he did. And we're supposed to walk in love with that as our pattern, with that as our prototype. You get down to verse uh, 8. We have another walking expectation. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, you can walk as darkness, but don't. That's not your new nature in Christ. That was your old nature before he saved you. Why are you going back to that? That's what you were formerly. That's what you were then. But now, what are you? That then versus now. And we're going to have some of that language coming up in uh, verses 11 through 22. So stay tuned. It's, It's an exciting contrast. And it's a different contrast than when you were unbelievers versus now that you're saved. And so that's going to be important to observe. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. And please, notice the, the cart is not before the horse. Okay, You're not walking this way so you can earn something. You've already been made a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And since this is what you already are, walking that way is an application. It's an appreciation. It's a, it's a consequence. It's not uh, trying to earn or deserve something. It doesn't say if you want to be light in the Lord someday, then you better walk this way. <laughs> if you want to be good enough for heaven, well, then you better you better change your behavior. It's not what it says. It says He has made you already children of light. So walk according to what you already are. See, to me this is this is beautiful. This is, yes, it's practical, but it's theological. It is incredibly theological. It says this. Really, it's the same concept you have in in Romans, where you consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why would you consider yourself that? Because it's the reality. It's what you actually are, by virtue of being baptized in the union with Jesus Christ. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's true for every born-again believer in the church age. You are baptized into Christ's death. You are baptized into Christ's life. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You consider yourself that because it's true. It's the reality. Same thing here. You walk as children of light. You know why? Because you are a child of light. Isn't that great? Because that's what you are. That's how you should walk. And you should have no problem walking that way because that's how you are. That's what you are. All you really need to do is volitionally decide that... um, you're done with that walk of darkness. Okay? As I say, confess your sin, be restored to fellowship, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh with regard to his lust. As you're walking in fellowship, as you're walking in the light, these things happen. It's, it's uh, pretty simple, really, when it comes down to it. Likewise, verse 15, still in chapter 5. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. All right, so this gets my attention too. When the Bible tells me to be careful, that gets my attention. Just like when it says, beware, that gets my attention. The Bible doesn't put warnings out there if there's nothing to be concerned about. If there's nothing, if, if, if really there's no danger, there's no, nothing to be warned about, that's not how the Bible works, okay? Our, our stupid culture does all the time. <laughs> we live in a dumb culture where lawyers have put dumb warning labels on all kinds of dumb products. You buy an iron, and the on the packaging of the iron, it says, don't iron your clothes while you're wearing your clothes. Okay? It's just, really? Anyway, this whole website's dedicated to the stupid warning labels, and they're, they're, they're amusing. You can, you can waste some time and enjoy it. Um, but that's not the Bible. The Bible doesn't have a single, not one, worthless warning label, okay? Every warning in the Bible is there for a reason, because God wants us to be on the alert. He wants us to be careful. In other words, the Christian walk is not designed for us to just wing it or or be sloppy about what we're doing in the church age. I think that's pretty obvious. Not as unwise men, but as wise. I mean, seriously? We're church-age believer priests. We're living in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Satan has demanded permission to sift us like wheat, and you don't want to be careful how you walk? You want to just prance about like a, like a fool? What are, we, what are we doing? Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men but as wise, redeeming the time, making the most of your time. This is where if you're not careful, the time's going to get away from you and you realize, man, I didn't walk the walk I was supposed to walk. And I, I, I have a lot of opportunity costs that I let slip by because I was walking in darkness. And uh, it's, you can't get that time back. So be careful. Redeem the time. Make the most of the time. I like redeem. Um, because the days are evil. And do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. We're going to deal with that. It's, again, it's more name calling. As uh, the, uh, you know, I'm not calling you a fool. The Bible's calling you a fool. If you are oblivious to the will of God. Okay, and uh, that doesn't mean you'll have a season where certain decisions are still kind of pending or certain, uh, you know, there's a fork in the road coming up and you're still uh, weighing and considering and praying and all that normal stuff. We're, we're not denying any of that. But we're, at the same time, we're also saying the will of God is knowable. That once you do the procedures, once you seek his will, you ask, you seek, you knock, and then you, you reach that fork in the road and you take it. Okay. What did I just quote? Was that Yogi Berra? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I think that was Yogi Berra. Anyway, but take the fork that God is leading you to. Okay? Because the race set before you, if you're seeking His will, if you're walking with Him and you don't know which way he's going, what kind of fool are you? Okay? You're yoked to him, are you not? So if he's going left, what way are you going? If he's going right, what way are you going? Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay? We'll teach that. I'm going to harp on it pretty hard because it's been a favorite verse of mine for a long, long time. So these are the peripeteo usages in Ephesians, and we've got a ton of them. There's more. In fact, you can look at, it's, a, it's really a, a hobby horse for the Apostle Paul. He loves the word, and he uses it in many epistles. We saw um, some of these other usages, so let me uh, show you how to get there, and then you can do this own study on your own. Right-click the word walk. Make sure you select the lemma, peripateo. Once you've got the lemma selected, then come over here and search the Bible. It'll give you every peripateto in the Bible. Okay? That's 97 of them in 88 verses. So depending on how much time you have and how much you want to look at, you might filter through. You can sift out because a lot of these are just basic normal usages of walking. Okay, people do a lot of walking. Uh, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, it's just a literal use uh, for walking. It doesn't really apply to the conduct of your life and the, the applications that we're making. So once you get your 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 search list here and you got your list of things you're looking at. Uh, the first thing I like to do is just get a visual glance and start to kind of chart it out in my mind, and say, "All right, here's the, here's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John," and go, "Wow, okay, John wins the prize for the the gospel with the most parapeitoe in it," and then you start looking at uh, Acts and the epistles, and some of these other high points are getting my attention. And wouldn't you know? There's there's Ephesians for you right there. It's kind of the pinnacle of the Pauline parapeitoe uh, neighborhood, okay. But you also spot, okay, four in Romans, First Corinthians. Uh, you get five of them there in Second Corinthians. Only one in Galatians, a lonely parapet in Galatians. Uh, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and and those are kind of interesting too because those are shorter books. Something that doesn't always play out when you're looking at a graph like this. This is just raw numbers per book. And that can be a little bit skewed when you realize how long some of these books happen to be. So if, um, if you want to adjust your graph instead of count per book, make it a ratio based upon uh, the number of words in the book. And then, boy, does Second John jump out at you. <laughs> OK, Second John jumps out at you because it's a short book, 25 verses, but uh, it, it really has a concentrated parapetal application along with 3rd John. That's kind of curious. So once you adjust it for the length of the book, then uh, those numbers can can adjust. Because those don't really look so impressive, do they? Until you realize how short those books are. And then you realize, man, this is a concentrated amount. All right, so anyway, I don't know if that helps you or not. Am I the only one? I'm visual as I learn, and, and I can stare at a chart. And at least if nothing else... Um, I get kind of a game plan for what in my mind I'm going to be anticipating as I start working through the New Testament books. Now, I might even come over here too. after I've searched the whole Bible for Parabateo. I might decide to change where it says all passages and I might just change it to uh, to the Pauline epistles. okay? Romans to Philemon. And that shrinks the list down, shrinks the list down. Now I've got 34 results in 30 verses. Again, you can pull up the chart and your chart is simply a Pauline chart. Okay? The fun things you can do with that. Romans 6. We'll wrap this up and then I'll give you a preview on uh, for what's coming up in verses 11 through 22. But let's just grab a handful of these beyond Ephesians, okay? Because, again, Paul is consistent in how he's using... And uh, this is our new position in Christ. Romans chapter 6, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you follow that? The whole logic, the argument of this chapter is we have a new nature in Christ. And that shapes our decision making. It shapes our walk. It shapes everything how shall we who died to sin still live in it? It becomes unthinkable. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? This is true for every born-again believer from the moment you're saved. This is your new position in Christ. Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might peripateo, we too might walk in the newness of life. And you know something? It's the same subjunctive mood. It's the same potential. It's the same purpose and design for why it is that he saved us, why it is he created these good works, why it is that he baptized us into union with Christ so that we are uh, identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And as he was raised from the dead, what were we? We were raised with him. Remember the sunagero, that triple compound divine action? He was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is our walk as church-age believers, in the newness of life. Romans 8.4 hmm. He sent His Son, and thank God that He did. Yep. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice, it's a done deal. It's accomplished. We already are saved ones. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Alright? We couldn't do it. God did it. The law was useless, but the, the cross accomplished everything. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Point point this verse to every legalist you know. Somebody that's trying to walk according to the flesh and accomplish something of merit that they think is going to make them a better Christian or better than the next guy or impress God with what they're doing. Just knock it off. Quit walking according to the flesh. Walk by means of the Spirit. Walk the new walk that's in Christ, the walk in the light. And, And you'll find, hey, you know what? The requirement of the law is fulfilled because Christ fulfilled it. Walk in Him. Don't try to fulfill it yourself. How dumb is that? Romans thirteen thirteen, Let us behave properly or let us walk properly. It's the same parapeteo. I don't like how they translated it, behave. They put, I'm sure, walk in the footnote there. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But it's not a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. It's not saying, you know, good people don't fornicate. It's saying, you have a new nature in Christ. So walk that way. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to us lusts. Why are you putting on the old man? Put on the new man. That new man is called here the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we identify with him or not? When we're walking in the new nature, are we not walking in Christ? Is the life that we now live, is it no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? The more we see this, that we see that it's Christ in uh, all that we walk and all that we do. Lesser colonel. Um, Romans 14. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. This is what happens when you're a stumbling block. And when you're tearing down, God says we should be building up one another and you're busy tearing down one another. No. Don't make a non-issue an issue. That's not how you walk according to love. All of these parapetal applications, the Pauline parapetal applications, are all about the conduct of your Christian walk in Christ. We can appreciate that. Unless you're carnal. If you're carnal, then you're walking like an unbeliever. First Corinthians 3, it's staggering to me. Yeah, have you encountered anybody yet? That, it's staggering to me when I encounter Christians that don't believe in carnal Christians.' <laughs> like, OK then. And the reason why they don't believe in carnal Christians is because they've got a flawed soteriology that thinks that they've kind of conflated uh, justification with sanctification, and, and so the idea of a carnal Christian to them is somebody that wasn't really saved in the first place. Because a real believer wouldn't do that. Okay? And so they have, their theology has no place for a carnal Christian. And so you have the chance to introduce First uh, Corinthians chapter 3 and say, Here it is. Paul was calling these guys carnal Christians. He says, You're fleshly. And he says, You're walking like mere men. Again, you don't go back to being unsaved, but you're walking like you are. You're walking like the unbeliever even though you are a believer. That's why you're carnal and you're not natural. As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this matter, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. It's our gifts and calling. It's our Christian walk. What it is that we're suited to do. Okay. What it is the works are prepared beforehand. And so... Um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit gives us our gift. Jesus Christ leads us in ministry. And God the Father works in and through us of his good pleasure. It's all about the works that he has prepared. And this is what we're supposed to walk in. As God has called each. And as I said, I've said, i said several times, I had a um, couple of foolish years in reversion and darkness and, and stupidity okay, as a teenager. And thank God he let me live long enough to get through it. He kept me alive. And uh, he smacked me upside the head and woke me up. And the biggest thing of, of, of my wake-up call was, man, this is not why he saved me. I've got a walk in front of me and I'm not walking that walk. And it was heartbreaking. So, uh, as you've been called, walk. In this matter, let him walk. 2 Corinthians 4.2 We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. Okay? Again, is this legalism? No. Because it's based on who we are. It's based upon our new nature. It's based upon, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We're not doing this in legalism, trying to earn or deserve anything. We're doing this in grace, in appreciation of of receiving what we've received. Man, we have this ministry. So how are we going to walk? Okay. Okay. We walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians 5.7 um, There might be some who regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. Well, guess what? We don't. And uh, we certainly don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Yes, we did. Here's the lonely Galatians use, but it's a good one walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh well wow, if you're only going to have one peripatetic in the entire book that's a good one okay walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh it is impossible to commit a personal sin when you're walking by means of God the holy spirit you can't do it that's why the command to walk this way is so vital all right well we got there's more there's all the ephesians usages there's philippians there's Colossians. You can do the search yourself and find these verses. I recommend that you do. If you have any questions on logos, I'm available. Alright, when we come back on Sunday, we're going to get to the next you were but. Okay? Remember in verses one through ten, you were dead but God. Now in verses eleven through twenty-two, you were separate and excluded but Christ. Okay? And it's a then versus now contrast, but it's not the same contrast. And I can't tell you uh, once we get over that hump, the rest of it gets easy. Okay? Uh, if we don't get over that hump, if we think we're just rehashing the same concept from one through ten, we got problems. This verse is, this this section becomes very problematic because it's it's beyond just simply. Not being an unbeliever anymore and being saved now, it's more than that. It's being united, Jew and Gentile together, into a new creation, a new man. And and it is fundamentally critical that we not mess up in these verses, because this is what's going to equip us to deal with the, the mystery doctrine that he reveals in, uh, in chapter 3. So stay tuned for that. And as we get into it, there is a lot there. So... Um, it doesn't get easier, <laughs> all right? It's just going to keep on uh, getting more and more uh, wonderful as we get absorbed in this in this wonderful patrological theology. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for truth. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for doing everything that you have done, blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the more we see these blessings, we just see more and more and more and more. Now we're learning about good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And um, all these things, Father, is for Your good pleasure, for the glory of Your Son. We, We want to learn more so that we can live better. We thank You and we praise You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, keep your armor on. Walk in the light. We will see you again, either here, there, or in the air.